Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcasts.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you're watching on our YouTube channel and have not yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button and click the bell so you can be notified when we go live or any new videos are uploaded. And with that, we'll dive right into our topic. Um, today, we're going to be discussing first century Christianity. We're going to be taking maybe this week and uh, maybe next week. We'll see how far we get. Um, but we're going to be doing some historical theology study, diving into very early Christianity, um, late mid to late first century. And in this time, we find the church uh, with much persecution and much hardship. Um, you know, you look no further than the Apostle Paul. We see this very early on um, with the Apostles, Acts 21, 31. Um, now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. The hymn here is referring to the Apostle Paul, and he was upsetting the Jews, and it was causing a lot of problems there in that region. Um, Acts 22, 22 through 29, it says the crowd listened to Paul until he said, this and they raised their voices and shouted rid the earth of him he's not fit to live as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air the commander ordered that paul be taken into the barracks he directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this as they stretched him out um sorry i lost my place here as they stretched him out to flog him paul said to the centurion standing there is it Legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Oh, you see Paul continuing to be persecuted, continuing to be uh, trouble for the Jews and them causing him trouble because of him preaching the gospel of Christ. So very early on, in accordance with what Jesus told his disciples, that the servant is not greater than his master, and that those apostles, as they would establish the church and teach Christ and stand up for Christ, that they would be persecuted. Um, so this is really kind of the context that we're seeing here. Um, and Michael Kruger, who is uh, one of the professors at um, Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, I think he teaches at the Charlotte campus, or he's the president of the Charlotte campus. Um, in his book, Christianity at the Crossroads, he provides some helpful insights on what persecution looked like and what the early church was like during the first century. Um, he says, in all these instances, however, there is no formal empire-wide persecution in place. It is sporadic and geographically isolated. That's on page 41. So uh, Christians not being above their master were persecuted, but we see the Romans not going full-scale assault against the Christians. It was really based on where they were located and in different pockets and different regions. Um, so there, there's no empire-wide persecution. Um, we see this clearly. Uh, Kruger brings out Pl Pliny the Younger, who was a, a Roman ruler in a specific area. Um, Kruger says he, Pliny, informs Trajan that his torture of two deaconesses revealed that Christianity was an excessive superstitio, a superstition. So Christianity had become a religion to be questioned. It was a religion of suspicion. It was, it was something that raised eyebrows for Roman leaders, um, not necessarily something that they were trying to outlaw um, outright or destroy necessarily. But it raised suspicion and it caused them really to harass the Christians um, as a result. Um, another interesting point that Kruger brings out in his book, he says, cult and culture belonged together. Jews were allowed to abstain from the public cult of Rome precisely because they were viewed as a distinct national ethnic group. Since Christians did not enjoy the status, they were viewed as simply insubordinate and disruptive to the prosperity and stability of uh, the state. So Jews were largely allowed to handle their own religious affairs because it was seen as cultural. Okay, those the Jews that was associated with their nation, 
They're people, we'll let them do what they want. We won't harass them too much as long as they're quiet and they don't cause trouble. Um, but the Christians, on the other hand, were a lot of them were coming out of the Roman system. You know, there were slaves who were Christians. There were people who were part of the Roman society who were Christians that weren't necessarily uh, part of any ethnic group that Christianity was directly associated with. So it was seen as something to really be um, to really be watchful for, and and that could be trouble for the nation. Um, so they were specifically picked on. So that is really the context that we find ourselves in with First Clement. First Clement, the book was really, um, I think it was probably written in the mid to late uh, first century, um, not probably not long after Paul was uh, allegedly executed, which was probably in the 60s AD. Um, so this was probably written not long after that. Um, so very close proximity to the apostles. Um, but we don't really have any real consensus on who wrote the book um, or even who Clement was. Um, Kruger talks about this in uh, talks about this as well. He says this, whether the author of first Clement was in fact the Clement whom Irenaeus later describes as the Bishop of Rome is unclear. Even if the author was this individual, there's no indication that he held an office of Bishop that was an authority over the rest of his fellow bishops elders. Indeed, as we have just seen the letter first Clement, itself speaks of bishops only in the plural with no indication that one bishop reigned over the others. At best, this Clement may have been the leader of his presbytery, a chairman of sorts, but there is no evidence that he bore the full-fledged authority that bishops enjoyed in later centuries. And he would probably mention presbyteries because Michael Kruger is a Presbyterian. Um, so I think that's where that's coming from. But be that as it may, there's no real good evidence that Clement was the first bishop of Rome. The Roman Catholic Church, I think, would claim that as his own. And again, we have uh, testimony of Irenaeus, who was one of the what's called the Apostolic Fathers, which Clement of Rome would fall into. And I was Tertullian, Sean, the other one? There's three, right? Sorry, what was that? The Apostolic Fathers. Tertullian was considered one of them, right? No, I actually don't know, and I don't want to misspeak on that. Yeah, I don't remember. But I, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure Irenaeus would be included in that. There weren't many apostolic fathers, um, but Clement of Rome is considered one of those apostolic fathers. Um, but we really don't know who he is. And in, in, in another book, another reference that I had uh, called The Fathers of the Church, um, the author says this about him as well. Quote, almost all we know about St. Clement is the honor he received from the churches of the world. According to St. Irenaeus, Clement was the fourth pope, a Roman who had learned faith from Saints Peter and Paul during their years in the imperial capital. Tertullian reported that St. Peter himself had consecrated Clement as a bishop. But these few details are contested today as they were, were in ancient times. So they're really, again, there's there's a lot of doubt here. And, and the author even notes that some writers even attributed Clement to Titus Flavius Clemens, who is a cousin of Emperor Domitian. Um, so we don't even really know. It, it's funny when, when it, this is a perfect example of, I think, the appeal to tradition by um, our Roman Catholic uh, friends, um, where there, there's such an appeal to tradition. And this is probably to ensure that the line from St. Peter is carried down, um, because as uh, it goes with the popery, um, St. Peter was the first pope, and then that role was handed down success, uh, in a successive state um, for generations afterward. Um, so he is, Clement is held by the Roman Catholic Church, to the best of my knowledge, as being a pope of Rome. Now, what about him being the Clement found in, in Philippians 4.3? Paul mentions a Clement. Um, it's possible, but I think it's doubtful. Um, and, and in my own research, I didn't find anything convincing that said that he was specifically that particular. Uh, particular. Ira Irenaeus um, seemed to think, Irenaeus seemed to think that this was, um, you know, the, the Clement of, of Philippians 4.3. And I, I think Tertullian might also bring this up. Um, but it doesn't seem to settle the issue. There's things such as location. You know, Philippi is nowhere near Rome. And if this Clement was associated with Philippi, you know, in, in the Clement of Rome was supposed to have written first Clement, 
Um, that seems doubtful, although he could have gone there later, but it, it, I don't think there's enough historical evidence to bring that out conclusively. Um, but be that as it may, the book of First Clement was written to the letter, or is a letter written to the people in Corinth, to the church in Corinth. Um, it seems to be continued um, really in the thought process of what Paul had done with regards to writing his letters to his, at least his first two letters to the Corinthian church. It's a letter of instruction. It's bringing out um, some issues that are happening in that church, and it's a letter of exhortation. So Clement seems to follow very much in the footsteps of Paul here um, in writing to the church at Corinth. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through the first 20 chapters. It's not very long. I'll read the first 10, and then Sean will read uh, the last 10 chapters, and then we'll discuss some of the themes that we see in there. Um, so, Sean, before we dive into that, is there anything you want to add um, to the historical overview? Um, maybe just to briefly touch on the uh, uh, the Roman uh, the Roman Catholic um, uh, assertions about mm -hmm. First Clement. It's interesting. The first time I was really introduced to it, I had heard about First Clement before, but the first time I was really introduced to it, a Roman Catholic acquaintance of mine. Uh, was trying to say, oh, you need to you need to read this. And he had gotten this from some sort of Roman Catholic publication. I don't remember what it was, but uh, you need to read this. This proves like the papacy or this this proves Roman Catholic doctrine is early. Uh, so I did, uh, or at least I read all the way to chapter 32. And when I got there, I just put it down because I was just in such shock. Uh, and when we get to chapter 32, you'll, you'll see why. Um, such shock that no, like not only does this not prove Roman Catholic doctrine, it, it goes very much against it. Um, so as we'll see, um, reading through this, just, just think about what's being read here and, uh, in your mind, think about, does this really sound like Roman Catholicism or does this, does this sound far more like Protestantism? Because I would definitely, uh, say that it, it sounds far more like Protestantism not that as we go through, we would agree with Clement on every single point that he writes, but um, uh, even if it's a little anachronistic to say it, I would definitely consider him a Protestant. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I, I think, um, I know this is jumping ahead, but the the church structure that is laid out in First Clement, where he talks about the role of elders in the church, or you might use the word bishops, but in how there needs to be congregational consent as it relates to the elders um, flies in the face, not only of, I would even say of a Presbyterian model, but also, but more, uh, more importantly, the Roman Catholic model of church government of ecclesiology. And it falls more in line with the congregational model. So I think it, it, it's, this is one of the neat things about studying the early church is you can see, um, you know, especially in our own tradition, there are things that we do that, we're not making stuff up, right? We're not inventing any, we're not inventing new things um, when it comes to things like this. Yeah, there might be things that are unique to our tradition that we find to be biblical that maybe weren't practiced in the early church, and that's not necessarily wrong. But it is encouraging when you see some of these things as early as a letter like First Clement that is within the generation of the apostles who knew Christ personally and, um, and you see these ecclesiastical structures starting to come out um, and being established. And then we find ourselves following in that same tradition in accordance with Scripture. Um, so I think it's, it's really neat when you study these things to see that consistency um, and to see how the early church did things from an ecclesiastical perspective. Um, all right, so let's dive in. So we'll start with the prologue. And we'll just read on uh, to, to chapter 20, and then we'll talk about First Clement Prologue 1. The church of God which sojourneth in Rome, to the church of God which sojourneth in Corinth, to them which are called and sanctified by the will of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from Almighty God through Jesus Christ be multiplied. By reason of the sudden and repeated calamities and reverses which are befalling us, brethren, we consider that we have been somewhat tardy in giving heed to the matters of dispute that have arisen among you, dearly beloved, and to the testable and unholy sedition, so alien and strange to the elect of God, which a few headstrong and self-willed persons have kindled 
to such a pitch of madness that your name, once revered and renowned, and lovely in the sight of all men, hath been greatly reviled. For who, uh, for who that had sojourned among you did not approve your most virtuous and steadfast faith? Who did not admire your sober and forbearing pity or piety in Christ? Who did not publish abroad your magnificent disposition of hospitality? Who did not congratulate you on your perfect and sound knowledge? For you did all things without respect to persons, and ye walked after the ordinances of God, submitting yourselves to your rulers and rendering the older men among you the honor which is their due. On the young, too, we enjoined modest and seemingly thoughts, and the women ye charged to perform all their duties in a blameless and seemly, seemly and pure conscience, cherishing their own husbands as is meet, and ye taught them to keep in the rule of obedience and to manage the affairs of their household in seemliness with all discretion. And you were all lowly in mind and free from arrogance, yielding rather than claiming submission, more glad to give than to receive, and content with the pro uh, provisions which God hath supplied. And giving heed unto his words, he laid up diligently in your hearts, and his sufferings were before your eyes. Thus a profound and rich peace was given to you all, and an insatiable desire of doing good. An abundant outpouring also of the Holy Spirit fell upon all. And being full of holy counsel, in excellent zeal, and with a pious confidence, ye stretched out your hands to Almighty God, supplicating him to be uh, propitious, if unwilling, ye had committed any sin. Ye had conflict day and night for all the brotherhood, and the number of his elect, uh, that the number of his elect might be saved with fearfulness and intent of mind. Ye were sincere and simple and free from malice, one towards another. Every sedition and every schism was abominable to you. Ye mourned over the transgressions of your neighbors. Ye judged their shortcomings to be your own. Ye repented, not of any well-doing, but were ready unto every good work. Being adorned with a most virtuous and honorable life, ye performed all your duties in the fear of him. The commandments and the ordinances of the Lord were written on the tablets of your hearts. All glory and enlargement was given to you, and that was fulfilled which was written. My beloved ate and drank, and was enlarged and waxed, fat and kicked. Hence come jealousy and envy, strife and sedition, persecution and tumult, tumult, tumult and I can't read today, war and captivity. So men were stirred up, the mean against the honorable, the ill-reputed against the highly reputed, the foolish against the wise, the young against the, uh, the elder. For this, case, for this cause, righteousness and peace stood aloof. While each man hath forsaken the fear of the Lord and become pure blind in the faith of him, neither walked in the ordinances of his commandments, nor liveth according to that which becometh Christ. But each goeth after the lusts of his evil heart, seeing that they had conceived an unrighteous and ungodly jealousy, through which also death entered into the world. For so it is written, and it came to pass after certain days that Cain brought of the fruits of the earth a sacrifice unto God, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of the sheep and of their fatness. And God looked upon Abel and upon his gifts, but unto Cain and into his and unto his sacrifice he gave no heed. And Cain sorrowed exceedingly, and his countenance fell. And God said to Cain, Wherefore art thou very sorrowful, and wherefore did thy countenance fall? If thou hast offered all a right, and hast not divided a right, didst thou not sin? Hold thy peace. Unto thee shall he return, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain said unto Abel his brother, Let us go over into the plain. And it came to pass, while they were in the plain, that Cain rose up against, his, against Abel his brother and slew him. You see, brethren, jealousy and envy wrought a brother's murder. By reason of jealousy, our father Jacob ran away from the face of Esau his brother. Jealousy caused Joseph to be persecuted even unto death, and to come even unto bondage. Jealousy compelled Moses to flee from the face of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, while it was said to him by his own countrymen, Who made thee a judge or a decider over us? Wouldst thou slay me, even as yesterday thou slewest the Egyptian? By reason of jealousy, Aaron and Miriam were lodged outside the camp. Jealousy brought Dathan and Abram down alive to Hades, because they made sedition against Moses, the servant of God. By reason of jealousy, David was envied, not only by the Philistines, but was persecuted also by Saul, king of Israel. But to pass from the examples of ancient days, let us 
come to those champions who lived nearest to our time. Let us set before us the noble examples which belong to our generation. By reason of jealousy and envy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church were persecuted and contended even unto death. Let us set before our eyes the good apostles. There was Peter, who by reason of unrighteousness, unrighteous jealousy, endured not one but many labors, and thus having borne his testimony, went to his appointed place of glory. By reason of jealousy and strife, Paul, by his example, pointed out the prize of patient endurance. After that, he had been seven times in bonds and had been driven into exile, had been stoned, had been uh, had preached in the east and in the west. He won the noble renown, which was the reward of his faith. Having taught righteousness under the whole world and having reached the farthest bounds of the west, and when he had borne his testimony before the rulers, so he departed from the world and went unto the holy place, having been found a notable in pattern, uh, found a notable pattern of patient endurance. Unto these men of holy lives was gathered a vast multitude of the elect, who through many indignities and tortures, being the victims of jealousy, set a brave example among ourselves. By reason of jealousy, women being persecuted, after they had suffered cruel and unholy insults, as uh, Danades and uh, Durkai safely reached the goal in the race of faith and received a noble reward, feeble though they were in body. Jealousy hath estranged wives from their husbands and changed the saying of our father Adam, this now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Jealousy and strife have overthrown great cities and uprooted great nations. These things, dearly beloved, we write not only as admonishing you, but also as putting ourselves in remembrance. For we are in the same list, and the same contest awaiteth us. Wherefore, let us forsake idle and vain thoughts, and let us conform to the glorious and venerable rule which hath been, which hath been handed down to us. And let us see what is good and what is pleasant, and what is acceptable in the sight of him that made us. Let us fix our eyes on the blood of Christ, and understand how precious it is unto his Father, because being shed for our salvation, it won for the whole world the grace of repentance. Let us review all the generations in turn, and learn how from generation to generation the Master hath given a place for repentance unto them that desire to turn to him. Noah preached repentance, and they that obeyed were saved. Jonah preached destruction unto the men of Nineveh, but they, repenting of their sins, obtained pardon of God by their supplications and received salvation albeit they were aliens from God. The ministers of the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit, spake concerning repentance. Yea, and the master of the universe himself spake concerning the repentance with an oath. For, for as I live, saith the Lord, I desire not the death of the sinner, so much as his repentance. And he added also a merciful judgment. Repent ye, O house of Israel, of your iniquity. Say unto the sons of my people, though your sins reach from the earth, even unto the heaven, and though they be redder than scarlet and blacker than sackcloth, then ye turn unto me with your whole heart and say, Father, I will give ear unto you as unto a holy people. And in another place, he saith on this wise, Wash, be ye clean, put away your iniquities from your souls out of my sight. Cease from your iniquities, learn to do good, seek out judgment, defend him that is wrong, give judgment for the orphan and execute righteousness for the widow. And come and let us reason together, saith he. And though your sins be as crimson, I will make them white as snow. And though they be scarlet, I will make them white as wool. And if ye be willing and will hearken unto me, ye shall eat the good things of the earth. But if ye not be willing, neither hearken unto me, a sword shall devour you, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken these things. Seeing then that he desireth all his beloved to be partakers of repentance, he confirmed it by an act of his almighty will. Wherefore, let us be obedient unto his excellent and glorious will, and presenting ourselves as sup, uh, suppliants of his mercy and goodness. Let us fall down before him and betake ourselves with his compassions, forsaking the vain toil and the strife and the jealousy which leadeth unto death. Let us fix our eyes on them that mis minister perfectly unto his excellent glory. Let us set before us Enoch, who being found righteous in obedience was translated and in, in his death was not found. Noah, being found faithful by his ministration, preached regeneration unto the world, and through him the master saved the living creatures and entered into the ark in accord. Abraham, who is called the friend, was found faithful in that he rendered obedience unto the words of God. He through obedience went forth from his land 
and from his kindred and from his father's house, that leaving a scanty land and a feeble kindred and a mean house, he might inherit the promises of God. For he saith unto him, Go forth from thy land and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into the land which I shall show thee. And I will make thee into a great nation, and I will bless thee, and will magnify thy name, and thou shalt be blessed. And I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the tribes of the earth be blessed. And again, when he is parted from Lot, God said unto him, Look up with thine eyes, and behold from the place where thou now art, unto the north and the south, and the sunrise and the sea, for all the land which thou seest. I will give it unto thee, and to thy seed forever." And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. If any man can count the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed be counted. And again he saith, God led Abraham forth and said to him, Look up into the heaven and count the stars and see whether thou canst remember them. So they shall, so shall thy seed be. And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. For his faith and hospitality, a son was given unto him in his old age. And by obedience, he offered him a sacrifice unto God on one of the mountains which he showed him all right first clement 11 for his hospitality and goodness lot was saved from sodom when all the country round about was judged by fire and brimstone the master having thus foreshown that he forsaketh not them which set their hope on him but appointeth unto punishment and torment them which uh, swerve aside for when his wife had gone forth from him being otherwise minded and not in accord, she was appointed for a sign hereunto, so that she became a pillar of salt unto this day, that it might be known unto all men that they which are double-minded and they which doubt concerning the power of God are set for a judgment and a token unto all the generations. For her faith and hospitality, Rahab the harlot was saved. For when the spies were sent forth unto Jericho by Joshua the son of Nun, the king of the land perceived that they were come to spy out his country and sent forth men to seize them, that being seized, they might be put to death. So the hospitable Rahab received them and hid them in the upper chamber under the flax stalks. And when the messengers of the king came near and said, The spies of our land entered in unto thee, bring them forth, for the king so ordereth. Then she answered, The men truly whom you seek entered in unto me, but they departeth forthwith and are sojourning on the way. And she pointed out them the opposite road. And she said unto the men, Of a surety I perceive that the Lord your God delivereth this city unto you, for the fear and the dread of you is fallen upon the inhabitants thereof. When therefore it shall come to pass that ye take it, save me and the house of my father. And they said unto her, It shall be even so as thou hast spoken unto us. Whensoever therefore thou perceived it, Perceivest that we are coming, thou shalt gather all thy folk beneath thy roof, and they shall be saved. For as many as shall be found within thy house, shall, uh, without thy house, shall perish, perish. And moreover, they gave her a sign that she should hang out from her house a scarlet thread, thereby showing beforehand that through the blood of the Lord there shall be redemption unto all them that believe and hope on God. You see, dearly beloved, not only faith, but prophecy is found in the woman. Let us therefore be lowly-minded, brethren, laying aside all arrogance and conceit and folly and anger, and let us do that which is written. For the Holy Ghost saith, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong in his strength, neither the rich in his riches. But he that boasteth, let him boast in the Lord, that he may seek him out and do judgment and righteousness most of all, remembering the word of the Lord Jesus, which he spake, teaching forbearance and longsuffering. For thus he spake, Have mercy that ye may receive mercy. Forgive that it may be forgiven to you. As ye do, so shall it be done to you. As ye give, so shall it be given unto you. As ye judge, so shall ye be judged. As ye show kindness, so shall kindness be showed to you. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured withal to you. With this commandment, and these precepts, let us confirm ourselves that we may walk in obedience to his hallowed words and with lowliness of mind. For the holy word saith, upon whom shall I look, save upon him that is gentle and quiet, quiet and feareth mine oracles. Therefore, it is right and proper, brethren, that we should be obedient unto God rather than follow those who in arrogance and unruliness have set themselves up as leaders in abominable jealousy. For we shall bring upon 
for we shall bring upon us no common harm, but rather great peril, if we surrender ourselves recklessly to the purposes of men who launch out into strife and seditions so as to estrange us from which is right. Let us be good one towards another, according to the compassion and the sweetness of him that made us. For it is written, the good shall be dwellers in the land, and the innocent shall be on the shall be left on it. But they that transgress shall be destroyed utterly from it. And again he saith, I saw the ungodly lifted up on high and exalted as the cedars of Lebanon. And I passed by, and behold, he was not. I sought out of his place, and I found it not. Keep innocence and behold uprightness, for there is a remnant for the peaceful man. Therefore, let us cleave unto them that practice peace with godliness, and not unto them that desireth peace with dissimulation. For he, for he saith in a certain place, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is from, far from me. And again, they blessed with their mouth, but cursed with their heart. And again, he saith, They loved him with their mouth, and with their tongue, they lied unto him, and their heart was not upright with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. For this cause, let the deceitful lips be made dumb, which speak iniquity against the righteous. And again, may the Lord utterly destroy all the deceitful lips, the tongues that speaketh proud things, even them that say, let us magnify our tongue, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. For the misery of the needy and for the groaning of the poor, I will now arise, saith the Lord, and I will set him in safety. I will deal boldly with him. For Christ is with them that are of lowly of mind, not with them that exalt themselves over the flock. The scepter of the majesty of God, even our Lord Jesus Christ, came not in pomp of arrogance or of pride, though he might have done so, but in, lowly, in lowliness of mind, according to the Holy Spirit, as the, as the Holy Spirit spake concerning him. For he saith, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? We announced him in his presence, as a child was he, as a root in a thirsty ground. There is no form in him, neither glory, and we beheld him, and he had no form nor comeliness, but his form was mean, lacking more than the form of a man. He was a man of stripes and of toil, and knowing how to bear infirmity, for his face is turned away. He was dishonored and held of no account. He beareth our sins and suffereth pain for our sake. And we accounted to him to be in toil and in stripes and in affliction. And he was wounded for our sins and hath been afflicted for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him. With his bruises we are healed. All we went astray like sheep. Each man went astray in his own path. And the Lord delivered him over for our sins. And he openeth not his mouth, because he is afflicted. As a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearer is dumb, so openeth he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away. His generation who shall declare, for his life was taken away from the earth. For the iniquities of, his pe of my people he has come to death. And I will give the wicked for his burial, and the rich for his death. For he wrought no iniquity, neither was guile found in his mouth, and the Lord desireth to cleanse him from his stripes. If ye, if ye offer for sin, your soul shall see a long-lived seed. And the Lord desireth to take away from the toil of his soul, to show him light, and to mold him and to understand it, with understanding, to justify a just one that is a good servant unto many, and he shall bear their sins. Therefore he shall inherit many, and shall divide the spoils of the strong, because his soul was delivered unto death, and he was reckoned under, unto the transgressors. And he bare the sins of many, and for their sins he was delivered up. And again he himself saith, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and an outcast of the people. All they that beheld me mocked me. They spake with their lips, they wagged their heads, saying, He hoped on the Lord, let him deliver him. Or let him save him, for he desireth him. Ye see, dearly beloved, what is the pattern that hath been given unto us? For if the Lord was thus lowly of mind, what should we do? Who through him have been brought under the yoke of his grace? Let us be imitators also of them, which went uh, about in goatskins and in sheepskins, preaching the coming of Christ. We mean Elijah and Elisha, and likewise Ezekiel. 
the prophets, and besides them, those men that obtained a good report. Abraham, obtaining an exceedingly good report, uh, obtained an exceedingly good report, and was called the friend of God. And looking steadfast, steadfastly on the glory of God, he saith in lowliness of mind, but I am dust and ashes. Moreover, concerning Job, also it is thus written, and Job was righteous and unblameable, one that was true and honored God and abstained from all evil. Yet he himself accuseth himself, saying, No man from filth, no not through his life, be but for a day. Moses was called faithful in all his house, and though his, and through his ministration God judged Egypt with plagues and torments which befell them. Howbeit he also, though greatly glorified, yet spoke no proud words, but said, when an oracle was given to him at the bush, who am I that thou sendest me? Nay, I am feeble of speech and slow of tongue. And again he saith, but I am smoke from the pot. But what must we say of David that obtained a good report, of whom God said, I have found a man after my own heart, David the son of Jesse, with eternal mercy I have anointed him. Yet he too saith unto God, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy great mercy, and according to the multitude of thy compassions, blot out my iniquity. Wash me yet more from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge mine iniquity, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee only did I sin, and wrought evil in thy sight, that thou mayest be justified in thy words, and mayest conquer in thy pleading. For behold, in iniquities I was conceived, and in sin did my mother bear me. For behold, thou hast loved truth, the dark and hidden things of thy wisdom thou hast shown unto me. Thou shalt sprinkle me with hyssop, and I shall be made clean. Thou shalt wash me, and I shall become whiter than snow. Thou shalt make me to hear of joy and gladness. The bones which have been humbled shall rejoice. Turn away thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Make a clean heart within me, O God, and renew a right spirit in my most inward parts. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and strengthen me with a princely spirit. I will teach sinners thy ways, and godly and godless men shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. My tongue shall rejoice in thy righteousness. Lord, thou shalt open my mouth, and my lips shall declare thy praise. For if thou had desired sacrifice, I would have... I would have given it in whole burnt offerings. Thou wilt have no pleasure. A sacrifice unto God is a contrite spirit, a contrite and humbled heart. God will not despise the humility, therefore, and the submissiveness of so many and so great men who thus obtained a good report hath through obedience made better, not only us, but also the generations which were before us, even them that received his oracles in pure and truth. Seeing then that we have been partakers of many great and glorious doings, let us hasten to return unto the goal of peace, which hath been handed down to us from the beginning, and let us look steadfastly unto the Father and Maker of the whole world, and cleave unto his splendid and excellent gifts of peace and benefits. Let us behold him in our minds, and let us look with the eyes of our soul unto his long-suffering will. Let us note how free from anger he is towards all his creatures. And the heavens are moved by his direction and obey him in peace. Day and night accomplish the course assigned by him without hindrance to another. The sun and the moon and the dancing stars, according to his appointments, circle in harmony with the bounds assigned to them without any swerving aside. The earth bearing fruit and fulfillment of his will at her proper seasons putteth forth the food and supplieth abundantly both men and beasts and all living things which are thereupon making no dissension, neither altering anything which he hath decreed. And moreover, the inscrutable depths of the abysses and unutterable statutes of neither of the nether regions are constrained by the same ordinances. The basin of the boundless sea gathered together by his workmanship into its reservoirs passeth not the barriers wherewith it is surrounded, but even as he ordered it, so it doeth. For he said, So far shalt thou come, and thy waves shall be broken within thee. The ocean which is impassable for man, and the worlds beyond it, are decreed by the same ordinances of the master. The seasons of springs and summer and autumn and winter, 
give way in succession one to another in peace. The winds in their several quarters at their proper seasons fulfill their ministry without disturbance, and ever-flowing fountains created for enjoyment and health without fail give their uh, give their breasts which sustain the life for men. Yea, the smallest of living things come together in concord and in peace. All these things the great creator and master of the universe ordered to be in peace and concord, doing good unto all things, but far beyond the rest unto us, who, is, who have taken refuge in his compassionate mercies through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory and the majesty forever and ever. Amen. All right, we made it. <laughs> That's the first 20 chapters of First Clement. Now we're going to talk about some of the themes that we see here. Um, again, this is a very early church writing, first century. Um, so we're seeing a lot of a lot of themes that are kind of coming out here that may sound very, very familiar. Um, right in the prologue, uh, you notice Clement says, The church of God which sojourneth in Rome to the church of God which sojourneth in Corinth, to them which are called and sanctified the will of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from Almighty God through Jesus Christ be multiplied. Now, this sounds very similar to what Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. It almost sounds like um, it almost sounds like the writer of 1 Clement is echoing what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ for the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's almost as if Clement took the opening from 1 Corinthians and um, paraphrased it, right? So I think this sees, I, I think, the writer for Clement would have known about this letter and probably known about the issues that Corinth was having even before the writing of this letter with regards to the issues that were being addressed here. And I think that uh, he's probably just echoing the sentiments of Paul in first Corinthians. It's really a greeting, right? And, and there seems to be this word of astonishment um, as he moves on that the church had fallen into the sins that they did. And we do know that uh, the Corinthian church had sin issues. They were not uh, they were not immune to those sin issues, and they were very well known for their issues in the church. Sometimes issues that and sins that pagans didn't even engage in, they were engaged in, and Paul rebuked them for that. Um, but we see here there is this sin of um, there's a sin of dissension of or division. We're seeing uh, here. This is echoing, uh, it, it seems to be the same issue that Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, where Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So it's essentially the same thing that we see Clement dealing with. He sees these divisions. Uh, he says, in giving heed to the matters of dispute that have arisen among you, dearly beloved, and to the detestable and unholy sedition, so alien and strange, the elect of God, which a few headstrong and self-willed persons have kindled to such a pitch of madness. So there, there seem to be divisions among them again. They're fighting amongst themselves again and again, and it seems to be causing um, all kinds um, of issues here. Um, and, and this seems to be very consistent with the culture that was found in Corinth. Um, you know, in, in doing my research, I, I can't remember the gentleman. It was a really good, maybe about a 15-minute video. Um, this British gentleman, some professor was in Corinth, ancient Corinth, and walking to different sites. Um, but he mentioned something that was very interesting, that the in the culture of Corinth, being self-promoting and making a name for yourself was part of the cultural norm there. Um, and that seems to have influenced uh, the church in Corinth. And it makes sense why Paul would address uh, these issues that were coming out there, they're saying, I am of Apollos, or I am of Christ, or I am of Paul. 
it's like they're trying to make a name for themselves or they're trying to identify with a certain name. Um, this seemed to be the mindset of, of the Corinthian culture, and they were very much influenced by their culture, it seems. Um, so it caused division. You know, I'm, I'm of this group. I'm of this clique. I'm with Paul or I'm with Apollos or I'm with Christ. And, and there are these unnecessary divisions in the church. And these divisions seem to be coming up again in uh, even not long after Paul had addressed the Corinthians um, the first time. And so it seems they didn't learn from what Paul um, had said. Um, anything you want to add to that, Sean? Um, not specifically about that. Um, I will uh, piggyback, I guess, on your your first point that uh, Paul, or um, Clement is echo, echoing uh, Paul's style in um, mm-hmm. in the uh, the greeting. Um, he also seems to echo quite a bit uh, the author of Hebrew style. It seems that he's uh, very familiar with the um, with the book of Hebrews. He'll say things like uh, Moses was called faithful in all his house, um, which is uh, an allusion to uh, Hebrews. He also talks about those that obtained a good report, um, which is mm-hmm. uh, which comes from Hebrews eleven two. And there's just little things like that that give me indication that he's very familiar with Hebrews and is using that same style um, or those same uh, themes in, uh, in uh, talking to the Corinthians, which also indicates that the Corinthians would be familiar with Hebrews, um, uh, that they would be able to pick up on that. Hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, it, it's it's almost as if Paul's writings are well known at this time, you know, it, whether you see Paul as the author of Hebrews or not. Um, but some of the, either Paul's Paul's writings of the Corinthians and probably Hebrews as well were well known um, at the time. And you see these themes kind of reoccurring in the same language being used um, that that is being discussed here. Um, and, and kind of along those lines of utilizing the New Testament, you see these New Testament books starting to be accepted. Um, the usage of the Old Testament by Clement here is very interesting. He appeals to it often. I mean, he's quoting there's quotes from Isaiah, there's quotes from uh, Genesis, there, in Genesis 15, he specifically quotes uh, early on in Genesis with Cain and Abel. He's jumping all over the Old Testament. And I think that's a very interesting point because it's very indicative of the place that the Old Testament had in the early church. It was seen as authoritative, it was seen as scripture, it was seen as from God, and it was something to appeal to um, in terms of how they should live and how they should govern themselves. Um, but we do also see uh, indications that uh, he's referring to other books um, of Paul later on in the book, and we'll get to that uh, in a little bit. Before you uh, move on, I do yeah. want to uh, bring up, uh, for those that would see Clement as uh, probably the second or third pope, something like that, um, is this how modern Rome, <laughs> the modern pope, are? are discusses things when there's when there's controversy uh maybe uh, who knows what's going on with francis at the moment but um it's very interesting that the majority of this is an appeal to the scripture to give them an example he's constantly appealing to the scripture he does appeal a little bit to um what they know to be true about the apostles um Mm -hmm. that um tradition uh, that th- their example that was known in their day. Um, there's stuff in there that wasn't uh, contained in the scriptures that Paul uh, had seven trips. Uh, I forget what exactly the, the wording was, but n- isn't necessarily contained in the New Testament. But for the vast majority of this is an appeal to scripture as the um, as why they should do things. And it's not Clement appealing to himself. It's appealing mm. him appealing to things outside of it. Uh, outside of himself, the vast majority just being scripture. Yeah, he's not he's not saying, well, based on my own authority as the Pope of Rome or based on my own authority as the Bishop of Rome passed down from St. Peter. He's appealing to the scriptures, which he sees as divinely inspired. So mm-hmm. he's he's appealing to that authority that supersedes him. Mm-hmm. It's very different from modern Rome yeah. or, or even even Trent and post-Trent Rome that would see the Pope as um, infallible and have such an authority as to usurp the scriptures. Yep. Um, yep. And we, you know, continue along this line, we even see uh, there, I think there's some echoing of the book of Hebrews 
here, or I'm sorry, the book of Romans here. Um, he quotes, uh, let's see, what does he say? In chapter 7, verse 3 of Clement, it says, And let us see what is good and what is pleasant and what is acceptable in the sight of him that made us. This is very similar to Romans 12.1. It says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So there's there seems to be some of these themes, and he's paraphrasing Paul, it seems here. So it seems he's accepting Paul's writings as, or at least here in Romans, as authoritative and something that should be followed and modeled as authority for how they are uh, to live. So it seems he's aware of, of the book of Romans. Um, and we even see, it, it seems that Paul's life uh, and Clement's life, whoever Clement was, did overlap. And I saw something... He was maybe born in AD 34. Um, so right after Christ's death, um, he was coming on the scene and he was growing up, you know, during the time of the apostles and probably heard their teaching maybe directly from, from them or someone close to them um, or maybe someone that they left behind or a church or whatever, but very close proximity um, to the apostles. Uh, and he's seeing these things already as being authoritative um, as it relates to how they should live, as Paul's writings here. And this kind of, you know, this calls back to our own confession, uh, chapter 1, paragraph 4. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. So the church was, and this is calling back to... Um, some of the themes that Michael Kruger brings up in Canon Resident, that the, the canon was received um, not merely on an empirical basis, but they saw the scriptures as coming from God. They saw these divine qualities as, you know, I guess matching what they saw in the Old Testament and knowing these divine qualities in scripture and seeing them in, the, in these letters that were being written and then they're receiving them as scripture. Um, so it, it seems to be happening very early on here. Um, page 110 of Canon Revisited, Kruger says, we, uh, not only does Justin put the memoirs of the apostles on part of the Old Testament prophets, but he mentions them first, showing that by this time, the reading of the New Testament scriptures had in some way superseded the reading of the Torah. So very early on, there is this seeing these letters as authoritative, as, as biblical, and, and God is working on preserving his, um, his word. Um, I do want to point out something here from, uh, what was it, pages 211 to 212, um, just a short section here where he talks about First Clement specifically, um, and he, where he mentions some of, of Paul's uh, writings. He says, the epistle of First Clement offers the following statement. Take up the epistle that uh, of that blessed apostle Paul to be sure he sent you a letter in the spirit concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos. This citation has a number of notable features that are consistent with that, uh, with what was observed in the New Testament evidence above. One, it is immediately apparent that the author, likely a Christian leader in Rome, acknowledges the unique apostolic authority of Paul and refers to him as blessed apostle. Indeed, First Clement notes elsewhere, the apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent from God. The Christ, therefore, is from God and the apostles from the Christ. In addition, he refers to the apostles as the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church. Number two, in this statement, the author makes a clear reference to 1 Corinthians and assumes his audience is familiar with it, showing again that at least some of Paul's letters seem to be broadly known by this time. 1 Clement also makes likely allusions to other epistles of Paul, including Romans, Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, and Hebrews, depending on whether one considers it Pauline, though we cannot explore this topic further here. Number three, although 1 Clement does not explicitly refer to 1 Corinthians as scripture, it does seem to give it considerable weight, noting that it was written in the spirit. So we see, again, early on, Paul's writings, even here in 1 Clement, we're seeing some of Paul's writings already being used as authoritative um, and, and probably seen as scripture. I mean, this, this term in the spirit is not always easy to interpret, and, and Kruger points that out, but it seems that that might be where the writer of First Clement is going here, seeing this these as divinely inspired writings. Um, so it's it's very interesting once you start to peel back 
the history here. And there's quite a bit of history that we can pull back, even from such an early time, um, and, and really see what was the early church thinking about the scriptures. It's very different from the narrative that we find that you might find in modern scholarship. Oh, the you know, the Bible was put together, maybe an Athanasius' Easter letter, you know, the canon was was solidified there, um, which is which is silly. We we see very early on, while there might not have been a, a corporate consensus. Um, we do see that there's a consistent, you know, set of books that were being laid aside that the early church was starting to see as authoritative um, and, and biblical long before Athanasius uh, came on the scene. Anything you want to add to that, Sean? Yeah, um, we as Christians believe that the, the word of God is, is self-authenticating. It is the word of God, and therefore there's no higher authority. It authenticates itself. So it's no surprise to us that um, Christians would immediately recognize it. They wouldn't need some extra authority to to tell you, oh, to tell them, oh, here's, this is the Bible right here. They just naturally recognize it because they hear the voice of the shepherd in it. Um, going back to uh, Paul, it's very interesting that... Um, the Clement says something to the effect of let us consider um, uh, the blessed apostles. And then he goes on to talk about Peter and Paul, basically putting them on the same level. He doesn't really yeah. make a distinction there. He just uses their two examples, which again would be a little interesting from a Roman Catholic perspective. Right. Yep. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I could see them trying to, I guess I could see them being okay with that, but it is interesting that they're, from Clement's perspective, there doesn't seem to be any extra weight to Peter. Um, and mm-hmm. he doesn't really ever appeal to Peter as being the Pope or anything like that. Um, he just appeals to him as an example and then appeals to scripture. Yep. No, that's a very good point. There, there seems to be this idea that the apostles were seen as co-equals, authoritative, you know, be, given their position, but, but co-equals. Yeah, but you, it would be natural if, Peter was the first pope, and the pope is considered the status that he is according to the Roman Catholic tradition, that he would hold him in a higher regard than Paul, but he doesn't. He just lumps him in with the other apostles, the other blessed apostles. Yep, that's a very good point. Yep. Um, and I'll note, too, in addition, you know, you note that um, there is this very natural reception of, of the word of God. Um, that's That's very true. I would say, too, that there were external factors that helpful like apostolic authorship mm-hmm. um consistency with probably with the old testament was probably another one i can't remember what Kruger, he brings out other things in addition to the you know this the self-authenticating um divine qualities of of the text mm-hmm. um but it's it's kind of like an i think what the what high scholarship tends to do is they they look at these things and they just go to the um to the empirical side and say, look, it's, you know, okay, did they accept them at the apostolic level? Were they, um, you know, were they consistent on all these other standards? But the divine, the, the supernatural aspect is typically left out. Um, and that's really where we would differ. Like our confession says, it's received because it is the word of God. It sees them as divine. Um, and I think they probably saw that in these other areas, like apostolic authority or apostolic authorship and, and, and maybe some other things too. Um, but primarily it's because of the divine qualities that are in those texts that they saw them as authoritative and well, truly scripture. Just just in having read through this, um, uh, First Clement, is it's an epistle written in a similar time as the, yep. uh, the epistles of the New Testament, yet it, it does not strike the same. It doesn't have the same power. Uh, that Although some did consider it canonical. Um, I did read that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a little bit of scripture by some. There's a little bit of uh, um, subjectivity to this. Yeah, yeah but yeah. like at least for me, reading this compared to reading the rest of scripture, it doesn't hit the same. Not to say that there's not truth in Clement, but in uh, much of what he's saying, but it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't have that power that the Word of God does. Yeah. Yep. All right, and then. Uh, Last thing I'll note is um, the reference to Genesis 15, which I thought was interesting by Clement. He quotes the section from Genesis 15 um, 
where Abraham is counted as righteous, right? And he doesn't expound upon this much in, in terms of alluding to the doctrine of justification. His point was to show that Abraham's obedience did gain a reward in a sense. I don't think he was necessarily talking about anything salvific. Um, but it's interesting that this specific passage in reference to Abraham's obedience was being pointed out. Um, but it, it's clear that, you know, they were reading the same scriptures we were <laughs> back then. And the doctrine of justification was clearly laid out in scripture even at this time, um, regardless of whether that was fleshed out post-Paul as much as um, we would see now uh, is not necessarily the case. I don't know. I'd have to do more study on that. But it is. I find it interesting that Clement points this out and, and expounds upon it a little bit. Well, for justification by faith alone, just wait till we get to chapter 32, because it is laid out in very explicit terms there, I would say. Oh, okay. um, I haven't gotten that far. <laughs> um, we, um, we as Protestants are always very careful when we talk about good works to make sure that we're making a distinction. Yep. I don't know that Clement necessarily felt the need to constantly do that. Um, maybe just because of the area he was in. Um, he didn't feel that need. Uh, we always, we always try to make that distinction very clear, but there is an element of truth, obviously to the fact that obedience does produce an award on that great, uh, day of judgment. We will, there will be rewards handed out. Um, yep. now ultimately it's, it's through faith in Christ that we're even saved at all. But in terms of our performance, there will be rewards handed out. And also, I don't know that he's very clear um, in making the distinction between um, fruit bearing testimony to our, our salvation, uh, at least in these chapters, obviously, when we get further on, I do think he's, he's clear. Um, he's uh, between fruit, uh, our good works, bearing testimony to the fact that we're Christians and not justifying us. Clement doesn't necessarily have the same things going on in his head that we do, that we always want to be clear that we're not saying we're justified by works. So he's not necessarily super careful in these sections to make that clear. But uh, I do think throughout the letter, you couldn't come away with any other impression that he believes in justification by faith alone and not by works of the law. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think there is a tendency among um, historians to maybe use an argument from silence to argue mm -hmm. something that an author didn't say necessarily. And that doesn't mean necessarily that they held to the opposite of what we're looking for, right? We see this in our own confession. There were things that were not necessarily addressed, not because um, they didn't believe them, but maybe there wasn't a need to talk about them because it wasn't an issue, right? It's like, it's assumed that their readers would understand something. Um, and so there was no need to talk about it, or it maybe had been addressed somewhere else. And it was, it was like, we're not focusing on that. We're focusing on this, not because we disagree with that other thing, but because we're talking about a very specific topic here. And we assume that, you know, we're assuming all of those things in what we're saying here. Um, and that's that might that seems to be the case here with with Clement. Yeah, there yeah. wasn't a controversy like we find in the Reformation yeah. over justification by faith alone. Um, so obviously, you're not going to necessarily find as explicit writings about it. Doesn't mean they didn't believe it, um, but it probably wasn't an issue. It's just assumed. It's like, yeah, this mm -hmm. is this is the gospel, guys. You know, what are you talking about? Yeah, and if you think about it, where do you see that battle really in the New Testament period? You see it with the Judaizers, right? It, yeah, the Judaizers have gone into Galatia. That's where the yep. that's where you see it. You see it in the Council of Jerusalem. Um, so, if it's it's if it's really in the Jewish world that this problem appears to be um, appear, where it appears to be a problem, you wouldn't necessarily expect it to see it in two Gentile churches. Um, Rome and Corinth that are very far removed from that argument. They're not. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily thinking about the law in that way that somebody um, like in a Pharisaical way, essentially. Um, which is again a, uh, one another reason why we might not see it explicitly laid out uh, or explicitly always laid out because we will see it actually that it makes a very very uh, good distinction. Yep. Um, did you have anything else, Dan? Because I had a couple final comments. Nope. 
All right. Um, I did think it was interesting in um, First Clement two the use of um, the number of the elect. And let's see if I can't uh, get mm. it. Yeah. So First Clement two four, he had conflict day and night for all the brotherhood that the number of his elect might be saved with fearfulness and intentness of mind. Uh, so obviously there's there's several non-Calvinists that could not say this in the way that uh, yeah. several kinds of non-Calvinists that uh, couldn't say this in the way that Clement says this, that there would be a number of the elect that needed to be uh, needed to be saved, that prior to the salvation, there's a, a fixed number of the elect. Um, and I'll, I'll, as we go through this, I will track uh, sometimes when um, Clement uses uh, uh, the elect in an interesting way. Uh, because sometimes he uses it, and it, it, I don't know that anybody would necessarily have a problem with it. Um, but in this case, it seems that uh, not everybody could um, could uh, affirm those words. Uh, then I did want to also bring up, um, let's see. Um, oh, it was interesting that, um, uh, this is uh, chapter 7, that... Um, it appears that Clement thinks that the uh, the Ninevites were all saved. He brings up that um, hmm. uh, that they uh, obtained pardon by God of God by their supplications and received salvation, which I, I don't necessarily disagree with. Um, I don't think it's we see the king repenting. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know it's explicitly or it's explicitly in the scriptures, but um, I don't necessarily agree, disagree with. And honestly, I'm, I'm I'm inclined to lean that way. Um, it's also, um, let's see, well, I don't know that I'm going to be able to find that. Um, and then, uh, I found the section with, uh, Rahab very interesting purely because, um, he's interpreting it in a, a slightly symbolic way and a slightly, um, hmm. um, uh, allegorical way. Yeah, he's not that he's proper, too- she's a prophesier or something like that. Yeah. Well, also that um this teaches us that it's by uh by the blood of jesus that we would uh we would be saved and why is he saying that well he mentioned the scarlet thread that was hung out the window Mm. um and this is this is pointing to christ and this is the uh the pre-modern exegesis that we uh we talk about sometimes that we see that um like you you wouldn't say oh well that would have never been understood in the original context when you understand that God is um, speaking to his church throughout the generations and that scripture interprets scripture and that all scripture points to Christ. It's very easy to um, to see that this is the appropriate way to interpret the scriptures. And I think Clement is uh, very much in uh, is correct to do it in this way. Mm. Yeah. You do see a typology there. Um, yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, that's all we have for today, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, we'll hopefully finish out the book next week, but we'll see how that goes um, as we do our study. But um, I think we'll be able to finish it out next week. Um, and then after that, we'll have a special guest on. We'll reveal that as the days are coming. Um, but thank you for joining us, everyone. Have a great weekend, holiday weekend, if you're off on Monday for Juneteenth. And um, we'll see you guys next week.